Well, good morning. It is early on Sunday morning, and I'm coming from I'm coming to you live from our hurricane bunker, which is also our basement, which is also our office. Basement. We don't have basements in Florida. It's our first floor where the garage is. But uh, at last check, it, the storm is still projected to move to the east and not make direct landfall. But as I'm uh, recording this, it's about to settle in over the Bahamas and it's still a category four monster storms. There is an eerie calm on this Sunday morning. And because we're familiar, we have a phrase, we're familiar with the calm before the storm. And so what I thought I'd do is send out a meditation for you so you can... Uh, it would be most helpful to grab your Bible and kind of wherever you are, if you're with friends, families, roommates, you can gather around the kitchen table, pull out your Bible. We're going to walk through Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Thought what would be a more appropriate text as we prepare for this storm to think about how Jesus calms other storms. And uh, But as I'm sitting here now, there's this remarkable calm before the storm, and then the question is, is there any way to have the same calm that you have before the storm? Can you have it in the storm? And so we're going to look at Mark 4, 35 through 41. So let me read that to you. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the winds and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? So a little background about how this fits into our larger sermon series. We've been going through the Lord's Prayer and looking at how the Lord's Prayer sets up the primary priorities for Jesus' family. It's... uh, Our theme all year has been joining Jesus and making all things new. And if you're going to join Jesus, he says, here's my family priorities. These are the things I want you to be committed to and the culture I want you to uh, create and experience. And you can see that in the primary way he structures the petitions. You have the first three are all about your God's God-centered commitments, your name, your kingdom, your will. We want to be about Hallowing your name and worship in life. We want to be about building and bringing your kingdom with our work. And we want our lives to be marked by continual pursuit of doing his will, obedient servants following his will. Those are the commitments. And then the culture that he wants to create is a culture of hospitality. Give us this day our daily bread, the assumption we're going to eat together. A culture of relational reconciliation, assuming that we who have experienced forgiveness from him will then extend experience, uh, forgiveness to those in our life. 
and then a culture of just faithful obedience and endurance. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil so that we can endure. And last week, what we looked at, when we pray for the kingdom to come, and what are we actually praying for? And we saw in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4 gives us the paradigm for how Jesus himself brings in his kingdom. What does he do? He comes, and in Matthew chapter 4, he comes uh, preaching the gospel. He comes discipling people personally, and then he comes um, healing all that's broken. And Matthew gives you this beautiful structure about how the kingdom comes. It comes both in word and in deed. It comes in word through Jesus preaching and teaching, and it comes in deed through his healing what's broken and then defeating what's evil. And that's not just Matthew, Mark, and Luke also give you the same structure of those things about how Jesus ushers in the kingdom in word and in deed. And here, actually, you can see it beautifully rendered in Mark chapter 4 and 5. Because Mark chapter 4, Mark gives you, in essence, the fourfold word that comes with these four great parables. Jesus come teaching in word with these four parables. And then he gives you four stories about how Jesus, the son of David, the new David, who comes as God's warrior to conquer and defeat all that's evil. And there's a fourfold evil attack that Jesus conquers in last part of Mark chapter 4 and then 5. He comes and he defeats the natural disasters. He defeats the demonic attacks. He defeats chronic disease. And then he even can defeat death. And so you can see that in that cycle of these stories, disasters, demons, disease, death. And he comes and he conquers all of those. So this first story that we're looking at here, the way it's set in the context of, of Mark, is it's the first illustration that Mark's, Mark gives you of Jesus' victory over, um, over evil, over uh, kind of the phrase that um, I think is helpful when you're thinking through Gospel of Mark, especially, is Mark gives you all these illustrations of what life is like under the shadow of death. And Jesus defeats these things, uh, disasters, demons, disease, and death. And uh, so we're going to look at how he defeats this natural disaster in Mark chapter 4. And the way I want you to think about this is, as you look at it, we're going to look at three truths about Jesus and then two questions. So three things we see him doing in the storm. And the whole goal is as we watch him dealing with the storm, we want to uh, go and do likewise. So three truths we see about him and then two questions he asks that uh, penetrate and pierce and challenge us. And the three truths are he sends the storm, he sleeps, and he stops it. So he sends it and he sleeps through it, and then he stops it. So he sends, he sleeps, he stops. And then two questions that he asks are, why are you so afraid and do you still have no faith? So let's pick those things up. So let's start with truth number one that we see. First thing we see is that he sends the storm. And I was very tempted to start with, it was a dark and stormy night on the Sea of Galilee. And that's what it was. You can see that verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And this would actually be a great opportunity if we were in church to show some of our slides when we went to Israel this past year because the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. 
30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon, which is 9,200 feet above sea level. So in those 30 miles, you have nearly 10,000 feet of elevation change, and so it can create for very volatile uh, weather patterns. And so this week we are well aware of the dynamic of uh, cooler, uh, stormy air, cooler air uh, clashing into the, the hot air from from the ocean and what that the, the volatility of that can create. So that's what you would have there. Often the hot air from the, the sea would clash with the cold air coming off the mountains. And so you could have these just vicious storms that could come out of nowhere. So you wouldn't uh, be, you know, they didn't have advanced Doppler radar to be able to give them advanced warnings. They could, they could come out of nowhere. And it's, it's really only in situations like this that we can sympathize with the vast majority of humanity across time and space uh, about how helpless we can feel in the face of nature's fury. Um, to some degree, the, the, the raw power of nature has been domesticated. At least we have a sense of its domestication because we feel like there's some way that we can predict and and control it, but it's in times like this that we're reminded of how little control we actually have and how dangerous these things can be. I'm reminded even just in regular rainstorms by John Bunyan, the great Baptist pastor who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He actually died because he was caught uh, outside in a rainstorm, and the rain, uh, he got chilled to the bone and 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 got pneumonia and couldn't, couldn't recover. So it's... Um, the f- nature's fury is something uh, that sometimes it can be helpful to be reminded of. But I want you to notice verse 35, one of the things that Mark is insistent on us understanding is that it was Jesus's idea for them to get into the boat and cross the storm. He's the one who said, let us go across to the other side. This was his idea. They were caught in a storm that he led them into. And then you see what is he doing in verse 38. He's asleep. So it's worth pausing that Jesus very intentionally sent them into this storm. And you have to think, well, why? He sends them into it. He was, it was his idea. And then their response, I mean, your natural response in that case would be both fear and anger. You then, if you were one of his followers, you would become resentful. Why did you send this? Uh, who knows? Perhaps Peter and the other uh, fishermen uh, advised against, maybe they advised him against getting into the boat at that time. Who knows? Uh, but anytime we enter into these situations, the natural tendency is to become angry and say, why are you doing this? And then I think in the whole text, you know, one of the saddest questions, but one of the, the realest, the most poignant, is in verse 38. But when he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And there's such emotional tenderness and energy wrapped up in that question. Don't you care? We're dying. Don't you care? And anybody who's entered or lived through any type of real storm, suffering, struggling, any sorrow, 
that's the cr- that's the natural cry of our heart to him is don't you care why are you letting this happen we're dying don't you care that we're perishing but he sent them into it and then notice what he's doing second thing he's he's sleeping and their mistake though is that they interpreted his actions um, incorrectly so they assumed that because he was sleeping, it was his disregard, that his sleeping was a sign of indifference, that the real problem with this situation is that Jesus is not awake and he doesn't care. Um, they were interpreting his actions wrong. <laughs> I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, who um, his day job was that he was a professor in Oxford, and often... I mean, I couldn't imagine this would just be dreadful. But the way they would have to grade papers, like undergrad students, they would come and they would sit in his office and they would read to him their their papers. They do that all throughout the week. And there's one illustration where one of the students was reading his paper and and C.S. Lewis fell asleep. And the, the student got angry and said, Dr. Lewis, you didn't even comment on my paper. You fell asleep. And he smiled and said, my boy, sleep is a comment. And uh, so here Jesus is asleep, and it is a comment, but the question is, what does, it, what does it mean? And they interpret his sleeping as disregard or a sign of indifference, but uh, what it really meant is that the situation wasn't as serious as they thought. Um, the real problem, as Jesus highlights, is their fear. That's one of the key words in this little passage. Is used, you know, notice how it's being used. It's used three different times about how they were afraid, Jesus asked, why are you afraid? And then they got really afraid at the end. But the real problem is their fear. See, they were assuming that the storm was about to bring their demise and their destruction, and they were assuming that he didn't care, and they were wrong about both things. Uh, They were not about to die. They were actually quite safe because he was there, and uh, they were wrong that he didn't care. And so it's worth, that's a great lesson for us because it's worth just pausing to think about in the reality of our storms, they can tend to taint how we are looking at our life, where we'll look at it and say, this is how it is. He's asleep. He doesn't care. I'm going to die. This is going to happen. And that really, that fear of death really is the fear that's underneath all other fears. It's the fear of death that's driving um, their fears here. So for us, the the application is don't misinterpret uh, the storms. It's not because he is asleep at the wheel. It's not because he doesn't love you or doesn't care for you. That's part of the drama when it says he was in the stern, the way the fishing boats were set up in the very back. There'd be a large cushion and, in essence, this giant rudder. And so that's the steering wheel. So they're going into the storm. They're assuming that he's driving the boat, and they look back, and he's asleep. And so literally, he's asleep at the wheel. Um, but they assume because he's asleep, he doesn't care. And that's, that's not the case. And so now you get to these two questions that he asked that are so poignant. When he wakes up, he says, why are you so afraid? In verse 40, have you still no faith? Do you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? And so you see, you see this, what was this? Um, antithesis is antagonism between fear and faith. That's the challenge. Live in fear or live in faith. 
and maybe a great thing to do today because at least it appears that today might be uh, calm and nice. Maybe spend some time reading through Mark and notice how Mark uses uh, the word faith. From this point, from this point all the way through the end of uh, chapter 8, faith is going to be one of the key themes. What is it? How does it grow? How does it develop? And you'll see all these different words, like I see your faith, you hear hear their faith, they understand, they follow. And there'll be three different groups that demonstrate faith. The disciples, as they are here, are um, an illustration of how Jesus expects our faith to grow and develop. It starts small, and then as we um, we learn, we grow, it develops, we become more and more men and women of faith. So that's one group, the way faith slowly develops. You also have the group of the opponents. More and more, Mark's going to start to highlight the opposition and the opponents that um, are coming after Jesus, and they are a negative picture of faith. See, they see him, but they don't perceive what he's doing. Uh, they hear him, but they don't understand, and it's actually shocking who some of the opponents actually are. They're uh, people from his hometown in Nazareth, some people in his family, the religious leaders, the political leaders. And their response is that they, they question his actions. They accuse him of blasphemy. They align him with Beelzebub and say he, he does this by the power. He casts out demons by the power of demons. And they question his authority. And so that's the way their actual lack of faith is evidenced in their life. And then Mark also gives you what's called, you know, scholars call these the supplicants. And throughout his gospel, the whole gospel, there's 13 of these different characters who um, most of them aren't given a name, but they're kind of side characters, but they represent the great variety of the ways that um, sin has, has stained us. It seeks to destroy us. And one of our key lines here is that this is God's w- good world ruined by sin, redeemed by the Son, and being recreated by the Holy Spirit. And what we can see is there's these 13 characters where sin has shattered them in some way. They all live under the shadow of death. And we'll see two of them in Mark, or three of them in Mark chapter 5, the man possessed with a demon, and then the woman with 12 years of chronic blood flow, and then Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter, uh, actually is on the point of death when he calls Jesus and then dies. And we can see the way they all live under the shadow of death. And for all 13, they come to Jesus in faith. They're illustrations of what it means to have faith because they all turn to Jesus in the midst of their real need and their real suffering and their real sorrows. And then they find healing. They find hope. So what does it mean to have faith? Well, there's a couple things as you unpack it in Mark. And really, you can use the the triad that we've started to use for our children's ministry. But real faith means that you know Jesus, love Jesus, and follow Jesus. There's a knowledge component. There's certain things that they need to know. They have to be clear about who he is. That's why it's so important that Mark precedes these things with teaching on the kingdom of God. See, there's an element in which they just need facts about him. They need information. I mean, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith is a leap into the light. See, often people say, well, I admire your faith, and they're talking to people who are believing things when it seems all other evidence and things around them gives them no reason to actually believe that. But that's not what real faith in Jesus is. Notice his question. 
Have you still no faith? After all you've heard me do? After all you've seen me do? Do you walked with me? Do you not believe that uh, something as small as this is going to derail my, my plan, my calling, who I am, and what I came to do? After all you've seen, you should, you should believe more after all you've experienced. So there's certain knowledge about him. But there's also affection, heart. We're moved by him. We love him. It changes the way we feel. The real problem is, is why are you afraid? The fear has captured your heart. And Jesus' challenges. he in essence said, you had no right to be afraid. Such a strange question in some ways. Why are you afraid? Um, Because it seems like we're in the middle of a storm. We're about to die. What do you mean? Why are we afraid? But he's actually challenging them. You, you have no good reason to be afraid. You should have felt different. You should be calm in this storm. If you really knew who I was, what I came to do, and those things. So it, it real faith changes in your affections, your heart. But then it also changes your life. You follow him, your commitment. I mean, he says, you should have acted differently. You shouldn't have woken me up in panic. You should have been more uh, serene. You should have been calmer. You should change because of the things you know about me and the way uh, it should change your emotions and your affections. And faith, so what we see here is that faith doesn't just um, come upon you. It's not an automatic reaction. It actually has to be exercised. It is not the default disposition of any disciple. It wasn't for them, and it's not going to be for me or you. And you can see that. Do you still have no faith? So he expects that it should be something that's growing, that's developing, that they're advancing in. So here's a question for us. When or in what situation would Jesus ask you, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You know, maybe it's in situations like this where our physical world, we're we're entering into something we don't know or can't control. So you become afraid. Or maybe it's whenever you start to think about your finances and you become afraid. Or maybe it's whenever you start to think about your future, you become afraid, or your family, you become afraid. What situation can you be in that causes the fear to be fueled? When would Jesus come to you and say, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? So the question is, how can we become men and women who have faith? How can we become the type of people who don't just experience the natural calm before the storm, but experience the supernatural calm in the storm? And I think what we have to do is we have to experience the, this third thing. So we see that he, he sends them into the storm. He sleeps during the storm, but then he stops the storm. See then verse 39, and he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Yeah, I love this. I love this <laughs> this phrase because, or this uh, this little scene, because what it demonstrates to us about who Jesus is, his humanity and his divinity. I mean, think about the humanity. I mean, here he is in these. I mean, if you've seen these little fishing boats in uh, on the Sea of Galilee, I mean, these think this is not the Royal Caribbean cruise line, and you think, how, how tired does he have to be to sleep through this storm? And when we talk about people who can really sleep, we say, oh, they'll sleep through a hurricane. 
but uh, like he's on the boat. The boat is getting tossed all over the place. The actual professional professional fishermen think they're about to die, and then water is coming in. It's you know, Mark tells you that water is breaking into the boat and it's filling up, and so. Um, how tired do you have to be where seawater is being splashed on you in a wild, volatile boat and you're still asleep? And I love that picture of Jesus' humanity is that he got tired. And so if you ever just feel tired, you're, you're not alone. But then you also see this remarkable picture of absolute power. I mean, the power to stand up and stop a hurricane with a word is just, it's just unimaginable. I mean, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't stand back and, and, and say, all right, roll up his sleeves and say, all right, this is going to really take some major magic. I got to pull out my, my, you know, garden of something magic wand and watch this. It's just two words. It says peace, silence, and then sit. And it's almost like uh, you know, the same control or authority or you hear you know, an owner will say to its dog, quiet, and then instantly it obeys. And so he stands up, peace, be still. And instantly the wind ceased and there was this great calm. But then look what Mark does in verse 41. There's a great calm in the sea, but there's not a calm in them because now in verse 41 it says they were filled with a great fear. And said to one another, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And that's the key question that Mark's a- answering or asking in chapters 1 through 8. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Uh, two key questions in the whole gospel. First half, who is Jesus? Second half, why'd he die? Uh, the two core questions that um, anyone can ask or answer. And who is this? And then on them, this even deeper fear comes upon them. Because as they're looking into his eyes, they realize that he's actually more uncontrollable than the hurricane. And so as we kind of wrap up, we want to think, all right, how can we, um, how should we respond to this story? So how can we people in essence who, because we'll always struggle with, with fear, we'll always struggle with fear in the midst of storms until what has to happen so we can become a people of inner calm, no matter what the circumstances are. And actually, Peter, you know, Mark is, is uh, most scholars think Mark's given you the, um, the recollections of Peter. Uh, Mark was a young man, probably discipled by Peter. And you, know, you look at Peter's example, because here Peter thinks he's about to lose his life and he's panicking. But then in Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter is, again, he thinks he should be at the end of his life, and yet he's not panicking. He's actually asleep. You know, in Acts chapter 12, he's uh, taken prisoner by Herod. Herod's already killed James, um, John's brother, and then he's going to keep Peter in prison, and then after the Passover, he's going to uh, publicly execute Peter, and it's the night before Peter's going to go to his execution, and instead of, like, this night, he is not panicking, he's not freaking out, he's actually asleep. So something has happened to Peter where he now has this inner calm where he is no longer 
controlled by fear like this? And the question is what? You know, what do you have to know or what do you have to experience so even if the storms rage out, kind of out there, you can still have calm in here, in your heart. And I think one of the things that happened, that Peter saw, that he experienced, I mean, one was the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, so that literally transformed his life. But another one is he also experienced another dark and stormy night. Another night, um, or as we're praying through the Lord's Prayer, think about our prayer for this week is, Thy will be done. And there's actually a, a section, it's the only element of the prayer that we actually see Jesus himself pray in those very words. And so you can think about another dark and stormy night, but this time it's not the disciples who are agonizing in the fear of death, it's Jesus. So you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and who's there? It's, it's Peter, James, and John. They're around Jesus. The other disciples are there, but they're a little closer. And think about the parallels. This time, on this dark and stormy night, it's Jesus who's agonizing in the terror, in terror for fear of his life. And what are they doing? They're asleep. And so in this story, Jesus is asleep when they wrongly thought that they were going to die. But at the Garden of Gethsemane, they are asleep when he rightly knew that he was about to die. And it's really as when we see the reality of what the storm that Jesus entered into on the cross. It's, it's only as we see that on the cross he entered into the ultimate storm so that now in him and through him and because of him, we can survive all other smaller storms. He entered into the ultimate Category 5 hurricane of the wrath of God being poured out upon him on the cross, and now every other storm is survivable. Every other storm is small in comparison. And once by repentance and faith, we are in his boat. We are in a boat that can't be sunk because he's already endured the greatest storm that we could ever encounter. So if you are in his boat, you're in a boat that can't be sunk. If you are in his bunker, you are in a shelter that can't be destroyed. That's why the name of the Lord is our tower and our refuge. It's our safe haven that we can run to. There's only one vessel that can safely navigate that ultimate storm, and it's him. See, on the cross, he calms the only storm that can truly destroy you. And so when we see him doing that and we experience him doing that, we can trust him in all the other storms that we will encounter. And when you do, you can find that there will not just be calm before the storm, but you can find that you can enter into a calm during the storm. So uh, that's a Sunday morning meditation on Mark chapter 4 about how we can enter into, uh, even when we enter into the storms, we can still experience the calm. So let's pause and let's pray, and I'm going to pray through the words that I sent out last week uh, from the Book of Common Prayer about prayer that will help lead us and pray during times of natural disasters. So we pray, Almighty God, by your word, you laid the foundations of the earth. By your word, you set the bounds of the sea. And by your word, you still the winds and the waves. So we ask that you would surround us with your grace and peace. We ask that you would preserve us through the storm. We ask that by your spirit you would lift up those who have fallen, 
Once it comes, we ask that you would strengthen all those who work to rescue and to rebuild. And we ask that for all of us, you would fill us with the hope of your new creation. All this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.